Hey friends, this is Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, where we analyze pop culture through the lens of race or gender and sometimes both. And I'm your host, Julia Washington. Today's rebroadcast is the episode where Megan Morgan and I discuss Passing, which is a 1929 novel written by Nella Larson. We had this conversation back in November when a film adaptation of the same name released on Netflix. It's a little bit longer than some of our other episodes in the past, but I tell you what, it's worth it. It's 100% worth it. I think about this conversation all the time. And I think about how can we bring this conversation, this story passing Megan's story and my story, how can these help create a better understanding of the black experience in a different way? Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you listen all the way through to the end. Hey friends, this is Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous and I'm your host, Julia. And on today's show, my friend Megan is here and we are discussing Passing by Nella Larson and the recent screen adaptation released on Netflix. This episode of Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous is brought to you by Modesto Reads. Modesto Reads is a community on Instagram highlighting what people in the city of Modesto, California are reading. If you want book recommendations or if you live in the city of Modesto, follow Modesto Reads and use the hashtag Modesto Reads. This episode is brought to you by Maya, my yoga audio, an intimate podcast experience of yoga just for you, your mind on your mat, listen closely, expand exponentially hosted by Megan Morgan, a yoga teacher, writer, and artist. You can listen to her podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Netflix released Passing on November 10th, 2021, and when the first images and trailer released, the internet went on a serious flurry of opinions. As I have mentioned numerous times on this show, I am a biracial woman whose racial ambiguity leaves me out of the conversation in a lot of ways. My father is Black and my mother is Italian, and because it is so often unclear, quote, what I am, it has made my life one big racial identity crisis after another even still to this day. But before we dive in, I must introduce you to my guest. Megan Morgan is a yoga teacher, author, artist, and marketing maven who was born in Bermuda, raised in Canada, and who made California her home eight years ago. Adopted as a baby, her Black and multiracial identity continues to inform all avenues of her life, from her artwork to her writing, and even her yoga teaching, as well as her full-time job doing marketing for the Sacramento Black Chamber of Commerce. 
married for 25 years to her college sweetheart, Richard, and with two adult daughters and two dogs, Megan's life as a reluctant and messy emerging empty nester is full, fabulous, and a constant work in progress. I also have to add that Megan and I met through a mutual friend through Instagram. And then we attended the 2021 summer future thought leader cohort offered by family on the go. And it was like an instant connection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Megan, I am so excited you're here. It's not often I get to do deep, meaningful, literary ish discussions with fellow multiracial people, especially those who I respect and admire. So I'm very excited. Welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much. Like we were saying offline uh, before we started, I was like, I'm signing in early because I'm just so excited to get to talk about this with you. And it's, it's amazing to have that connection with somebody. And then about this topic in particular, like so close to my heart and so close to who I am. So it's just, it feels amazing to, to know another person even who shares that excitement. Yeah. And I feel like we don't get to have, we, as you know, multiracial people, we don't have a ton of stuff in pop culture that we can sort of identify with and talk about as it relates to us. It's always like one half or the other or none at all. Like there's no like middle ground. And this is sort of a middle ground that we actually like I feel like have authority in. (laughs) (laughs) We do experientially at least. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So let's kick off today with a summary of the 1929 book Passing by Nella Larson. Set primarily in the Harlem neighborhood of New York City in the 1920s, the story centers on the reunion of two childhood friends, Claire Kendry and Irene Redfield, and their increasing fascination with each other's lives. Irene is a light-skinned Black woman who passes when it's convenient. One day, while back in Chicago for a visit, Irene has a chance meeting with a childhood friend, Claire. Claire is lighter-skinned than Irene and living the life in disguise. Claire married a white man, John Ballou, who is blatantly and proudly racist, while Irene has married a Black doctor. Years after their encounter in Chicago, Claire and Irene reconnect again when Claire and her husband moved to New York. Claire becomes part of Irene's social circle. With the threat of being found out as Black and the smell of an affair, Passing is a poignant novel that addresses race in a way that forces the reader to not only understand 1920s America, but is still so relevant today. The 2021 adaptation is directed by Rebecca Hall. She also wrote the script and stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. Also, I have mentioned this before. The internet has been nonstop buzzing about this film. But before we take a look at reviews, I want to start with the most obvious place. Megan and I are both biracial, and though there is an age gap between us, our blossoming friendship has unearthed similarities, and I cannot imagine having this conversation with anyone else. So Megan, I want to start with the novel. How old were you when you first read it? How did it influence your life? And what are some of, what were some of like the big takeaways? Oh, the biggest, best question of all. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, it's a trick answer to the question because I was in school when um, I discovered this novel, but I had gone back to school in my thirties and I just doing my, my Google doctor Googling, you know, online in the early two thousands, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but somewhere in my early thirties and found the book online because it's now part of um, public domain because it was published so long ago. And so I found, and I just started reading and couldn't stop and brought it up to one of my professors at school that I was working on in my art and art history degree. And they're like, I can't believe you've never heard of this before. I'm like, 
you know, we're in, in Canada, which is, is, has an even way smaller black population and mixed population than the US. Um, so it was never in any kind of official school setting, but I did discover it while I was in school. Now, of course, I do have the physical copy of the book and much ado has been made about it, but it, it shifted my whole world upside down. Here was this author who, even though the book was written nearly a hundred years ago, I found, and I'm sure you have too, just as topical today. Like those conversations never go away. They never stop mm -hmm. happening and it might shift. And I'm, I know we're going to get into that um, today, but for me, it was like, I immediately started thinking about how I could use this, not just in my personal life, but in my artwork, which my, my degree is in um, photography and in art history. So basically formed the thesis of my grad school work. So when I graduated from the San Francisco Art Institute in 2012, part of my master's thesis was creating work around um, this topic. And I actually dressed up as the three characters, the three main female characters in the book. Uh, but instead of calling them by their names, I called them Mrs. Brown, Mrs. Black, and Mrs. White. And we can get into that a little bit later. And then how it affected me personally, I guess I I truly identified with Irene as a, mm -hmm. as a character, just in terms of my appearance, like passing is absolutely not anything that I have ever tried to do mm -hmm. or tried not to do. Like I've yeah. always like, it's just been me and people say that's a, it is a luxury. It is a privilege when you're lighter skinned. It's always been projected upon me. So mm -hmm. people who didn't understand or didn't know that I had black in me would be like, I've had we've talked about this too offline before, like, what are you? And I've had yeah. people guess everything from Native American to Asian to, you know, when I'm in the Southern United States, people think I'm from Cuba or South America. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's kind of funny in a way, because it's always a guessing game um, for people. But I've had people, um, actually a really awkward experience when we first moved to Sacramento, and I was invited out to a play by a new neighbor and friend. And she was like, we're gonna meet at this other neighbor's house and we're all gonna to go together and it's gonna be great. And overall it was a great night, but I showed up to this other neighbor's house. We sit down, we're having a glass of wine and he asked me where my kids are gonna to go to school. And I was like, oh, just down the street at this, this great school um, here, it's got really great ratings. He's like, yeah, it is, it's a really good school. And he's like, so many parents took their kids out years ago because all these black kids started coming. But I say, it's just fine. <laughs> like. <laughs> And I'm sitting there and I'm kind of like, is he saying that not, not knowing who I am? Or is he right. saying that knowing who I am? Or what does that mean? And I, I think he didn't know because mm -hmm. after he never spoke to me again. Mm. So I mentioned it to the neighbor later. And I was like, this, he said something really weird. And I'm like, I, you know, what do you think? And she was like, oh, he must not have realized yeah. who you were and that, you know, you caught him in this moment or whatever. And since that time like has just never acknowledged my presence after going out to the theater together, having drinks oh and dinner gosh. and lovely conversation. And after telling me it's okay that black kids are going to the school, but thinking that I was white, you oh know, my and gosh. then I don't know if he was just embarrassed or whatever. Yeah. And then at the same time, even though I've never consciously said, I'm going to go into a situation where I have to pass or not pass. Um, I worked with somebody who, um, who did that and 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 told me basically that um she considers herself a white person even though her father is black and she had green or greenish bluish eyes mm -hmm. but to me it's always been 
very obvious but she lived her she married someone white and they, they know her background like she wasn't yeah. hiding it from her spouse um, but she went through life purposely not telling people about that and would say she was white if asked and it happened at the same time so I'm studying oh. for school I discover this book I realize this person I'm working with is is doing this and know she would flat iron her hair like mm. obsessively and was like seriously would freak out if it was raining or snowing because because we all know what that's going to do to our hair (laughs) yeah so that was kind of what was informing me at the time when I first discovered the book and the ironies of all of that are 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 insane but it's a ripple effect and continues now with the the movie coming out I'm like all excited all over again because I'm like it's still relevant it's always going to be relevant and yeah it's a really important, I think, novel too, in the conversation about just how we all treat each other. So when you were telling the story about your neighbor, I'm thinking of the scene, both in the book and the movie, where John has no idea, right? Like he's clearly ignorant to the fact that his wife is black and he is clearly ignorant, period. And so Irene is just so shocked by his blatant racism and is so deeply affected by that and just has a moment after the fact. And I, I like, I feel like that's always my life. (laughs) I'm always finding out the truth about people because they say things because they don't understand what they're looking at as a person who's potentially, or they do, it just depends. Like you mentioned earlier, it just depends on where you are and what people's other people's life experiences are. So seeing that scene, I was wondering, like, what, reading the book, I was like, how are they going to see this scene? How's this scene going to play out? Like, how are they going to act it? And Tessa Thompson did such an amazing job with her face Knocked and her body language. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was like, girl, did you watch every single one of us? Like, were you spying on all of us when we get into those situations? <laughs> yeah. I stopped it and rewound it a couple of times because I was like that one thing I will say about the adaptation, I loved it. I, you know, I always worry because I'm like, yeah. I love the book. Am I going to like the screen? And I absolutely loved it because the movie had so much more warmth mm-hmm. and nuance mm-hmm. than the book. Like to me, the book is very formal and clipped and it's almost like, it's like these little bites. You keep mm-hmm. reading the pages and you're kind of like, oh, and, it, and it's supposed to sting. Like everything sort of stings but the movie still does it, but has this, like, there's so much beauty and emotion and, and nuance in there. And that scene in particular, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. in my humble opinion, she should be nominated for 100%. something for that scene. You mentioned that you loved the book. I also loved the book. It breaks my heart that it's not taught in school. And I think I told you this offline before when we were, when you sent me the original article that sort of sparked our offline conversation that sort of led to this discussion today, it, the junior college in my town brought back African-American literature as an elective after years of not having it because either they didn't have somebody qualified to teach it or they thought it wouldn't fill up. I don't know. It was part of the supplemental reading. It wasn't part of the required reading. It was a supplemental reading option. So did anybody read it? No, I did because mm-hmm. I've known about it. Right. And I was like, oh, I'll read it again. I'm thinking we'll read it on, a, on an academic level. How great would that be? No, didn't happen. And then when I transferred from junior college to university, again, I took a black literary tradition class. I think is what they called it. It's not in there. 
it's not an option. It's like not listed. It's not required reading in the curriculum. Again, also that was an elective class, not a required class. Mm-hmm. Grad school. I'm in grad school. Nope. It's not mm-hmm. even listed as supplemental reading. And I'm like, okay, all right. This is a really important novel because we can't not talk about race in our country. And guess what's a great door opener? Passing by Nella Larson. But go ahead, y'all. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee it's I would I would hedge a bet that it's not taught anywhere in Canada either. I mean, when I started speaking to my professors about it, they all knew about it and that I couldn't believe I hadn't read it. But by that point, most of my professors were American. So of course, you know, when I was going to grad school in California, they all were like shocked. Um, But I'd, I'll do some digging, but I highly doubt it's on any reading list anywhere. Yeah. I was listening. There's this podcast by a famous bookstagrammer called Novel Pairings. And they talked about the book on a recent, well, last year on an episode, and then they re-aired it for, you know, obviously with anticipation of the movie being released. And she's an English teacher. And she was talking about how you could absolutely easily replace passing for The Great Gatsby. Because I personally am not a Fitzgerald fan. I hated reading his book in high school. I, I don't like him as a human. Um, and I hate The Great Gatsby because I hate the I just, the, the conversation about class in that book, I feel like is a smack to the face for people who want to try or what, you know what I mean? It's, it's like perpetuating this American dream, but like the American dream only exists if either like in a, in a very specific type of way and the themes in the book about class and relationships exist in passing. And that's the point that she made, um, on Instagram, she's called fiction matters. And that's the point she made in her podcast episode is like, you still have the conversation of class and relationships mm-hmm. and the twenties era, but then also you have the layer of race. So you're actually hitting more boxes for conversation to help people learn deeper and think critically. And wouldn't it be great if we swapped it? So I'm having a conversation with my kid. I was like, you read Great Gatsby in school. And he's like, yeah, I hated that book. I was like, oh, I'm, so, I'm just so glad. I'm so proud of you for hating that book. <laughs> and he, he w- like went into the, all, re- all the reasons why he hated it. And I was like, oh, I'm so, this, is how, this is how you know you weren't raised by white people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I feel like we need to start like a movement. Like I'll DM this woman and be like, how can we make this a movement to swap out the great Gatsby for passing? Because she made some really good arguments as an English teacher about why this would be a really good swap out. You're not losing anything in terms of themes and what you're trying to get the students to understand. And then you're gaining even more because now you can have an actual conversation about race that isn't shrouded in whatever it's shrouded in 90% yeah. of the time, you know, or at least to have both. Like now that they're pulling out books, like I was at my appointment this morning and I'm looking at a school in Kansas. They pulled 28 books um, for review. They haven't officially banned them, but it's on its, on its route. And it's like the handmaid's tale, the bluest eye um, notes on a, Oh my gosh, I can't remember the other one, but there's 28 mm-hmm. of them. And I was just like, <laughs> this is how it starts right like we get some voices out there and talk about a different kind of American experience and then everybody's all up in arms about it and 
I'm like, they'd find some reason to say that about passing too. But yeah, I agree with you. It should be on some lists and in some curriculums out there too. I think the movie's going to help with that. Like, I hope that more people will bring it in. I mean, it's not that long. You know, yeah, it's like a hundred like, pages or something like that. Yeah. It's really short, and it packs a lot of punch in such a in such a short period of time. And I wondered if I might. I still have like my materials close by here. Yeah. From, um, uh, you know the work that came out of this because I was trying to bring it to more people too. So like the, the big one of the biggest highlights of my life so far um, was the teacher and author and photographer Deborah Willis in New York City, and she ended up writing an essay for um, the image of the black in Western art, the 20th century, and the rise of black artists. And it was a series of journals these big thick books um, that are co-authored and edited by Henry Louis Gates Jr. And so um, she interviewed me about this work uh, that was part of my thesis, Mrs. Um, Black, Mrs. Brown and Mrs. White. And if, if it's okay with you, I'd read absolutely. some absolutely. of the paragraphs. Okay. Yes. It helps, it might help, um, you know, bring some more into this conversation. So from the beginning of her career, then Toronto-based photographer Megan Morgan has focused her work on identity, race, class, and gender. She constructs tableaus about race and role plays for the camera. Inspired by the writings of the Harlem Renaissance author Nella Larson, and specifically Larson's 1929 novel Passing, Morgan reimagines tea time with three old friends, all mixed-race women in her photograph, Mrs. Black, Mrs. Brown, and Mrs. White. So this is the scene with Gertrude and yes. Claire and Irene. Mm -hmm. The theme resonates with her because of her own mixed racial heritage and appearance. And she writes, the drinking of tea and the colonialist historic undertones that we're potentially embracing in the novel also struck in me as something that's important to the scenes I was creating. I also intentionally colored the women as literally black, white, and brown because of the inherent but utterly insufficient associations that are made with color in all areas of this discussion. There isn't anyone who is actually those colors, but people are reduced to these terms in order to satisfy social and cultural categorizations that make people feel more comfortable. I am indeed also making a little bit of fun of those terms. Uh, ritual is central to Morgan's presentation on misidentification and the three figures are evenly spaced backlit enhances the color saturation of each. The three are dressed differently. One has a yellow dress with beads and a headscarf. The second wears pants and a hat. And the third has a beige dress. They're all portraits of the photographer who plays each character and all appear to be happy, but with secrets to share. Mm. The only way to reconstitute yourself when you have been consistently misidentified is to confront your subjectivity and perhaps even become the very thing that objectifies and categorizes you, Morgan says. I perform and document challenging activities and moments that have been recounted to me from my family history, chronicling the struggles that accompany these metaphors for our contemporary existence. She explores our reception and perception as they relate to our skin color, as well as who is embraced and who is rejected based on these modalities. And she draws our attention to the ironies associated with identity politics and color. Morgan places all three characters on an even footing. There is no perceived hierarchy, and she situates the viewer's gaze at eye level 
creating tension while encouraging the viewer to join in in her performance. Mm. So that was, I was just like, I can't believe this person. <laughs> you know, I, it, it was, it was like someone hears me, someone sees yeah. me, you know, and from um, um, culture. And that's something with passing too, that that's a theme that I feel like the black community all, almost always mm-hmm. accepts me, but mm-hmm. when it's the other way around and they, you know, she talks about that too. It's sort of like, it's easy when Irene says to, uh, is it Hugh? I think when they're out at the club and she said, um, it's easy enough for a black person to mm-hmm. pass as white, but I don't think it would be so easy the other way around. Mm-hmm. And like, same thing with Claire, like every time she comes back, they're like, they accept her, or they're forced mm-hmm. to accept her, but it doesn't work that way the other way around. If they're found out in a white yeah. um, situation, they can't, yeah. you know, that doesn't work that way. So it works one way, but not another way. And I'm so yeah. I'm kind of like, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because that's actually not always been my experience. Um, and I don't know if that's because uh, my mom's white and people know that, but at least in town where I live, it's always been, you know, mixed on being accepted in the black community. And that's really hard because I find a lot of comfort in the memories of my childhood with my grandparents and my aunt and my cousin and just living in their world. Um but I can't, that's not always easy to not replicate, but that there are some, there are some sections of the black community where that comfort still exists. And then there's some where it's like, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're not really truly one of us because look at how light you are and look at mm-hmm. you talk white and you act white. And I'm just like, that's so cute because when I go to white people, they don't think that, but okay. <laughs> yes. I've had one of the, um, probably most traumatic (laughs) experiences of my life. I mean, I can laugh about it now. And I actually did write an article about it for my university newspaper in 1990, it was like the mid nineties somewhere. Um, So it wasn't my now husband, it was the college boyfriend I had before him who was also um, black and darker skinned than I am. And we were walking through the mall and just like, you know, we're holding hands and like swinging or whatever. And to a bunch of teens that were sitting at the bus stop, they thought that I was white. It was wintertime and I had like a hat on and my hair's typically always been long. And so it was, I don't know. And they were like, I heard them, you know, whispering something about him being with a white girl mm-hmm. and started screaming the words to Jungle Fever. Oh, Stevie Wonder, like in chorus. And they were really good singers. Like yeah. it could have been Lauren Hill. You know what I mean? It was it was well done, but I was dying. I was, yeah. I was like actually dying and was crying and not, they didn't see that part, but I like right. turned away as we waited for the, cause they just kept going yeah. and he thought it was funny. And I'm like, he's like, oh, I think you're fine. And I'm like, that's, that's not funny to me. Yeah. And same thing, yeah. like my husband um, has a Jamaican background. And so we've gone to visit Jamaica and he's had people see us in town and say like, oh, you have a white wife. And he's like, no she's she's not like well she's and so even if they know they discover my my lineage or my heritage they're like yeah but she's she's too she's not really black yeah you were were just saying so it's that his family has always embraced me but like universally community has not always and like you said you kind of just never quite know where you you stand sometimes yeah it's hard 
Mm-hmm. In an article in the New York Times titled The Secret Toll of Racial Ambiguity, which Megan sent me, by the way, which sparked this, you all. So, you know, thank you, New York Times, for creating conversation between me and Megan, even though we don't need any help. <laughs> Writer Alexandra Kleeman offered this and it resonated with me big time. It's not a film about the past or even the social conditions of Larson's America, but about the way choices made during Larson's time reverberate through succeeding generations. It highlights the psychic afterlife of racial trauma, the quiet holes pressed into the psyche by self-denial. So I've talked a lot on this show about being biracial and all the things that come with that. I don't say this next line lightly because I know a lot of times we, there's a lot of, you know, dismissive passiveness about what we as black women can accomplish now. But this is like a true statement because my grandmother was not allowed to do the things that I've done in my life. We are so very lucky to be alive in a time where we can openly live as mixed race women who are college educated and in influential positions in our careers. In the era of the 1920s, the world was more volatile with less protection. And I'm specifically thinking of things like, you know, the protected class classification for sure. There's a scene in the book and it's lightly touched on in the movie. And I was wondering how they were going to do it. And it was kind of, I'll get into my opinions about that in a moment, (laughs) where Irene, Claire, and Gertrude, who we do not meet in the movie, but we do, or do we meet her in the movie? I was curious. I think there's that one character she was walking on the street with, with and they run, meet John. I'm like, yeah, is that Gertrude? Is that Gertrude? Like, I, okay, okay. I'm glad I had, I'm glad I, I think- wasn't the only one with that moment. Irene, Claire, and Gertrude are discussing their children. And when Irene and Gertrude ask Claire if she and her husband will try for a boy, Claire says this, and I pulled it directly from the book, friends. No, I have no boys and I don't think I'll, I'll ever have any. I'm afraid. I nearly died of terror the whole nine months before Marjorie was born for fear she might be dark. Then Gertrude offers a similar statement and she adds that her husband thought it was just an idea in her head, but then she also includes, they don't know like we do, how it might go way back and turn out darker no matter what color the father and the mother are. So I kind of want to talk about this scene a little bit because in the movie, it didn't play out this way. In In the movie, it was a quick conversation points when Irene comes back to Gertrude when Irene comes back to Claire's hotel suite and so I feel like when we are you know as mixed people skin tone is a big thing right like it's not just a big thing for all the all the races but when you're mixed it's like it's like a little it's a little different it's either an elephant in the room or it's a big smack in your face and thrown at you as like a weapon that you have no control over so when you read that scene, and then now we can add the layer of the position against the um, the movie, how did it make you feel? Because I it hit me when I read it a second for the second time in adulthood, because when I was pregnant with my son, it's literally a conversation I had with his dad was like, we don't know what color this child's going to come out. So please know it's yours. Yeah. <laughs> like, like if he comes out a little darker like my dad, it's not not yours. Right. There's. Oh, it's like I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. And people who like know me, people who know me closely know this story. So there's two things. One, I've never thought about that in my life. Like I was just like, I knew I wanted to have kids and couldn't wait to have kids and, and just didn't care. Being that Meghan Markle and the prince 
Harry and the prince and Prince and Harry. The, I mean, he is the prince because <laughs> William has said some stuff recently where you're just like, okay, William. So given what happened with them when Megan was pregnant and everybody was so shocked and I was like, I've been there like a, a close member of my family, not 24 hours after my first daughter was born, called me up and not, how are you? How's the baby? It was whispered into the phone. How dark is she? and I could not like I still remember that moment like it makes me want to vomit even Mm -hmm. now just thinking about it like wow like that's really the one thing you're gonna you're gonna ask me Mm -hmm. in this moment and I was just now that was in 1997 so you know but still I'm like 1997 who asked that question in 1997 yes and you know fast forward 20 years and they're having that conversation about Archie right again again it's like another generation it's still happening and then as follow-up from that my uh so I have two daughters and the younger my younger one when she was little like no joke she had like blonde hair and green eyes she's pretty pale now they're both basically about the same skin they're fair-skinned you know that they've got you know a lot of my features and my complexion their dad is darker whatever if they spend a lot of time outside they get darker but, <laughs> but naturally they are um, closer to my skin tone which is pretty ambiguous so mm-hmm. sometimes you know they get mistaken a lot for for other things as well and I'm just like is this ever gonna go away you know but when um, my youngest was a baby and she had this like basically not totally straight but like wavy blonde hair and my husband was wandering around um, downtown on a Sunday I had to work and had two little old ladies stop him and ask him where he got that what was he doing like he was afraid someone was gonna like call the police yeah and he was like but I look at her and I look at other people and I get that people can't like you look at her features Mm -hmm. if you really look you can see that they're related but like Mm -hmm. just based on skin tone their hair and like Mm -hmm. typical phenotypes it was like why is that man carrying a little white baby and people more than once like that was only one of probably 10 times he's been stopped where people didn't think she was his did you see that article from recently about the southwest employees who thought the mother of the biracial child was human trafficking her I saw it this week Mm -hmm. and you know she's got a little girl and I was like that looks like it could have been me when I was little right (laughs) and they like it's southwest and I'll have to send you the link because it I I only read a bit of it because it I mean I know we all love the word to use the word triggering for stuff nowadays it's like overused but it really was like hard to read because you know here's this woman who's like this is my child. I gave her life and you are assuming because she's brown with brown curly hair and she's got like the little highlights of blonde in it. Um, and they just assumed they were, that she was being trafficked, but it was just really heartbreaking. I mean, this is, it literally happened. I want to say in the middle of October. Um, and so they've been sort of going through the, the news cycle to try and make the story known because it's like, Hey, you guys need to have better training for cultural training for your employees to know better. Cause had I been on the plane as a flight attendant, I'd been like, no, that's probably her mom because yeah. that's me and my mom, <laughs> you yeah. know? And with the whole, in with the whole, um, everyone kind of coming out a little different, you know, that's my life. My brother is the darkest one and we progressively get lighter. And if my parents had had a fourth child, I'm convinced that that child would have been completely 
white in appearance you know people will be like oh I knew you weren't fully like when you kind of announce like oh yeah I'm like I'm have a black parent oh I knew it I knew it I wasn't gonna say anything you know this this if there was a fourth one that I'm convinced that they would have been so white that no one would have ever (laughs) doubted that it was my mother's child (laughs) there's oh I have a really good friend um back in Canada their whole family same thing her um dad is black from Jamaica and her mom is is white actually I think Italian as well no oh look at that for how how racist (laughs) Italians can be in the country of Italy towards black people there's a lot of us running around now that I think it's been it's been like yeah almost 10 years since we've been together but the same thing happened so my my one friend I don't I don't want to name her uh but um she's the most you know she looks similar to us she's got like like thick curly hair she has like more black features she's still pretty pale but it's you know you can kind of tell the rest of them no one's got blonde straight hair and blue eyes and the others have have darker hair but like but white skin and they go through the it's like the constant theme you've just reminded me I need to reconnect with her because she'd be a great person to talk about um talk about this with as well yeah you know it was interesting in the movie you know Claire clearly is missing her people and she kind of makes that comment too in the movie Mm -hmm. and like you in the past I've always sort of identified with Irene and then lately this time around um so I listened to it on audiobook this time just me too yeah yeah just because when I was like oh it's coming out soon I want to I don't have it's 100 pages and I thought to myself I don't have time to reread it that's a lie I could have totally reread it um but I wanted to listen to it on audiobook because Tessa Thompson did is that the version you listen to yeah so I love she did such a good job she's a great voice yeah actress yeah like if I like what's gonna go with a woman (laughs) 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 you make me question my uh oh just kidding yeah yeah (laughs) I can't Uh, believe I just said that, but but, you know, this time around listening to it, it was like, oh, I kind of, I feel Claire's loneliness, you know, like she misses her people. Her husband's terrible, terrible. Like that's actually putting it nicely. Her husband's a pile of garbage. Um, But for the time, I feel like that's completely accurate in what because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding too with the way that we treat teach American history, you know, when it comes to like the South versus the North, when it comes to slavery, there's this sort of glossy, mm-hmm. like the North was abolitionists and they were anti-slavery. That doesn't mean that they were anti-racist. Like that's the part that they leave out. Yeah. And not everybody was happy about everybody moving up North. Right. And they do the same thing with Canada. Like it, there was slavery there too, but it was like, it was different than here and yes the further north you went the less severe it was compared to the south but don't kid yourself that there still wasn't bad stuff happening there and there were slaves that were in Canada like the underground railroad really warped that perception Mm -hmm. yes they were slightly more free there but still really seriously disenfranchised compared to um other people oh and something else you just said touched up the amount of empathy that I had for Claire in this watching and in this listening was increased. Mm-hmm. I feel like the first time around, I was kind of like, she, I just, she, I didn't like the character. I was kind of like, I can't believe she did that. But when it comes to well-being, like mm-hmm. like you said, in the 1920s, if you, <laughs> be, being light and bright at that time, if mm-hmm. you could pass and get away with that, then your economic 
prospects were greatly improved, mm -hmm. right? That you could run a business, you could marry up, so to speak, mm -hmm. I'm using quotation marks. So you do that for survival, right? Mm -hmm. Or to not be lynched or mm -hmm. to not, you know, have racial epithets hurled at you to get a good education. So I can totally understand why somebody who could do that at that time would do it now, even though we know there are disadvantages to being quote unquote ethnic, quote unquote black, it's different than it was then in terms of extreme. So this time for Claire, I was like, yeah, it's, and it partly was brought by the actress, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing like a parallel with today, and it's not, it's not to make my family sound like the worst. I think every family has, has racists and prejudice. Um, but when I decided to marry who is my now husband, one person told me like, I can't believe you, you're going to do that. What about your children? And I was mm. like, what do you mean? What about my children? Like, don't you want to give them a chance? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. So their understanding was you've married someone darker than you. You're going to have kids that are darker than you. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be like a stain on them. Like they're not going to get ahead in the world because they're going to be darker. Mm -hmm. The irony being that they're still the same skin tone as I am anyway, because yeah, you yeah. never know how that's going to happen. But it was like, they perceived me as doing that, that I was going to economically disadvantage myself and my children, that mm -hmm. instead I should look for somebody white. And I was like, I can't even believe, do you know what I mean? But yeah. you know, like in the 1920s for somebody who's trying to get ahead, like I can kind of. And to feel know. safe too, yeah. like the point you mentioned on. So like, but there's a cost, like, and you yep. can see it. So you can see it in Ruth's face the cost of turning away from your community and the difference between she and I, I didn't turn away from my community. I just am naturally introverted and have and struggle with like making connections. So like I was telling a new friend, I was like, I just feel comfortable with you. So I apologize if it looks like I've latched onto you. I just don't bond easily with people. So when I actually have a bond with somebody, like I want to keep, I want to help that relationship grow. Um, and because I feel like I've outgrown my city and it doesn't have a lot to offer anymore, it's hard for me to kind of go out and make effort just generally now. But there's this longing that I have, like, I'm not a religious person. Sorry, mom and dad. I think I might actually be agnostic. Sorry, mom and dad. Um, but I found myself thinking, God, I really, I wonder what happened to my grandparents' church and where did they move? Because I would love to show up and just feel that again and just mm. feel that community again and just kind of walk in and sing the songs and have the warmth around me from that. And because of those feelings that I'm having of just feeling like out of place and not really fitting somewhere, Claire really hit this time because she's clearly lonely. She's living with somebody who has absolutely no idea. And if the truth comes out, she's probably going to get murdered. And so it just creates this whole different level of despair this time. Whereas before, yeah. when I read the book like 20 years ago, I was like, who is this hoe trying to get Irene's husband? <laughs> like, what are you doing, girl? <laughs> like, this is not okay. I don't care. What are you, but I had no life experience. You know, I didn't know. And, and so some of the nuances I think were lost on me at 17. And even at 25, I think still a lot of it was um, the nuances were still a little, cause I'm not, I don't have, I don't, I've never been in a relationship longer than 10 months or a year. Or so even that, but this time I was like, Ooh, girl, you are sad. You are lonely and you are a threat 
whether or not you're intentionally trying to be a threat, it, it almost, that almost that, that element almost doesn't matter because you're sad and lonely and Irene's threatened by you, but yet she can't stop herself. Yeah. I know in the, in the movie adaptation, I was like, to me, it felt like it was more in Irene's head Mm. than a reality to, but I don't know whether that's true or not, because the way it was portrayed, as you just said, that she is lonely and she is sad and is a threat therefore because who can resist you know a pale skinned damsel in distress mm-hmm. so that was very very real but then also you know Irene never feeling good enough and how you know sometimes I don't want to say always but sometimes um there's the perception that being lighter and brighter is better and so mm-hmm. because by society right and so because Claire is there constantly representing that yeah. that's the threat to Irene so she's going to see it whether Claire intends it or not Not. even if Claire is is overtly going after her husband um she's still a threat even if she's she's not to her because it's that like perpetual Mm -hmm. thing even the way they did the light right when that like blinding white light would come Mm -hmm. in like it was so beautifully done in black and white at first when I heard that I was like not excited I was like I don't want to watch this in black and white but But it was good. It was, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. They were very specific and technical with yeah. that lighting. And it's amazing. It takes me back. Like my degree is in, in photography and in art and art history. And I was like, damn, it's been so long since I've seen somebody really use that lighting and those yeah. filters to, I mean, they look completely different in every yeah. single scene. And, and I think yeah. And so I like you, I was on the fence about black and white. Cause I was like, Oh, it's the twenties. You can do so much with, you can do so much with that. But after having watched it, I realized it needed to be black and white. Cause we also needed to be confused. We also needed to be blinded by the racial ambiguity, um, of these women and the other characters too. Like we needed to see that her husband is obviously black, right. That Irene's mm-hmm. husband, husband and children are like very clearly black humans we needed to see that how Claire and her husband really in shades if the lighting is right don't look that different in terms of shade um to really hone in just how complicated the skin tone conversation can get and is also I love Alexander Skarsgård and I'm just so upset that he keeps playing assholes (laughs) Right. Oh my God. He's one of my favorite actors. And I was like, no, when I saw the previews, I was just like, don't make him this jerk. But, yeah. yeah. Especially because the last thing I saw him in was uh, Big Little Lies. Did you see Big Little Lies? He's a wife beater and I'm not here for that shit. Oh, wait. With them, Nicole Kidman. Yes. I did. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. That was, was so good, but like so bad. Like the- yeah that storyline of that oh, that's right that's mm-hmm. right that was the last thing I did see him in do it Alexander Skarsgård <laughs> like I can't I just can't with you I need him in a rom-com or something that makes it a little bit better because if you do a third movie I see where you're a shit human we might have to have a different relationship <laughs> or as a vampire he was in the like Sookie sta- True Blood yeah oh yeah True Blood. He was like, it's a bat, but it's like an acceptable, like yeah, a sexy it's, vampire. It's a different, it's, yeah, okay. it's a different, different vibe, different vibe. He's not, he's not giving his wife a pet name that is super inappropriate. Uh, yeah. That scene again, that scene again. 
that scene hit when he was like, oh, she was white as a lily when we first met and she's getting darker and darker with every year. So I said, one day she's going to be blah. And I was like, one, I forgot. That's totally how that went down in the book too. Um, <laughs> but what, to see it in real real life right quotes real life in a movie humans actually saying it out loud I was like hmm very reminiscent of all the assholes who tell me that they're darker than me in the summer <laughs> okay white people stop saying that <laughs> no for and I mean that still comes up I feel like I grew up in a family where uh you know tanning like in the 70s mm, and 80s mm-hmm. was like a big thing and I'd just be a kid outside but like of course I would get darker, but like my adopted white sister was like blonde hair and green eyes would like get, and she was so proud of that. She'd be like, look, I'm darker than me. <laughs> and it was just like, it was endless source of entertainment for people my whole life, actually, to this day, still it happens. And it's one of those things too, where even in, in some pockets in the black community, the experience that I've had where people would tell me to get out of the sun because I need to like protect myself from getting too dark. And my, I'm just... my grandma, I, she had stories of growing up. So my grandmother on my dad's side was born in 1926. Oh. And so she would tell us her mother did not allow them to play outside because they would get too dark. And we think that they were passing or at least because the way that granny talked, it sounds like they were passing. And she would say that she was Jewish. And up until about this year, I didn't realize that there is a Jewish black community. I didn't know that mm-hmm. because we just thought granny was full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> she was wearing a star of David. She said that her stepdad was Jewish. And we were just like, there's no evidence that you were Jewish, but okay. But because of some of the people that we were in uh, future thought leader with, I've learned so much more. And like, there is this whole community of black Jewish people. And it just was like, maybe grandma wasn't full of shit. Like now Lenny I need Kravitz. to Yes. Yeah. Well, but, but, you know, his parents were all, you know, his parent was like, clearly, you know, yeah. it, it was clear in their lineage. Whereas yeah. like my grandmother was just like, I wear a star of David. We're Jewish. And it's like, mm, grandma all of your parents' death certificates say Negro or colored. So I'm going to go with, I need more clarification. (laughs) Okay. See, and there's, and she was born in 1926. She's born in 1926. So, you know, her parents probably Mm -hmm. died somewhere in the fifties, sixties. Yeah. It's a protective, I mean, it's the same thing. I did a a 23andMe DNA test and it's, it's partially because I'm adopted. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to find out, um, more as much as possible about my my background beyond just the obvious black and white and have you know come into like however many second third fourth fifth sixth cousins yeah and I had this one woman reach out to me who is one percent she's like 99 percent white you know you see her photo and she's clearly a white person but she has this like one percent or two percent black and it's traced back to Bermuda where I was born and so she was like asking me all these questions and I'm like, I, I don't know. Cause like when I look at what her family tree is, like yeah. obviously there's a connection there somewhere, but I'll tell you what I know, but I'm not going to have all the answers for right. you. And I'm just like, you know, if, and again, there is some question about how accurate these tests are, but mm-hmm. nobody is like 100% anything. Mm-hmm. Like we all have these lineages that are way more storied. And like you said, someone who's born in 1926, 
was clearly black or colored but passing and then says they're Jewish well after a certain amount of time goes by then where is that connection and for so long people wanted to bury that yeah right because they were just like no we're just like we're just white now but now it's a little bit safer right right to be able to look into that stuff and people are more interested in their their family trees and I know Henry Louis Gates has that show too oh, finding your roots oh yeah. I love that show I, I want to be it. on that show <laughs> I feel like I we need, would be good candidates. Right? Like I need his team to help answer questions. And I feel like I'm not alone. I feel like there's a lot of people in the black community who are like, we have questions because no one talks. Yep. On my, that's the side that's missing. Like I grew up with my mom's family. Mm-hmm. I have pictures going back to like late 1800s, early 1900s of them, like in Europe in a, and it's, that's partially a class thing too, right? Because they could afford to go and get their photograph taken mm-hmm. at the photographer's studio beyond my grandparents. Like I know who my father's parents were, but beyond that, I don't know anything. And I've, you know, social people like to drag social media a lot, but through Facebook, I have actually come into contact with additional relatives who found me on there and they've yeah. been telling me about aunts and uncles and great aunts and uncles and so and so this is your cousins and it's oh yeah I texted you that picture of one who actually showed up on 23 and me who's like same you'd see her on the street and she's like she looks white but according to that thing she's like 16 percent black or whatever and I'm just like there's this whole world out there and to me that's that's like really important to me because I don't know and for people who grew up in a solid family who can trace both sides. Like mm-hmm. I know people who can trace their families back to the literal freaking Mayflower. And yeah. I just, it boggles my mind how some people have, but families like that are protecting that privilege by, mm-hmm. by having that, like that is a privilege to have your lineage as a record, as a document mm-hmm. and, and come back to this momentous moment. And when you arrived, it gives you more claim. I feel like somehow to this soil, to this life, to this yes. experience. And then those of us who don't have that, it's kind of like, not everybody, but I sort of feel like there's a lot of people adrift because they don't, they don't have that claim to, yeah, to where's who our, they are. Where's our grounding? Where's our roots? Mm-hmm. Right. That's why I love the, that the show's called finding your roots, but mom, my mom's side of the family, we can go way, girl, we can go way back. That yeah. shit is so far back. It's redonk. <laughs> but then on my dad's side, you know, it's been, a, obviously it's been a little bit harder. And then there was this football player in the seventies. His name was Jimmy Streeter. He wrote a biography. The prologue is basically like he hired somebody to help sort of figure out his family lineage. And it turns out, so in 2006, we went to North Carolina for my grandfather's 90th birthday. My grandparents were 10 years apart. My grandpa was born in 1916, which always throws people my age off because they're like, what? My great grandparents were born then. I was like, yeah, we are a late start family. Okay, thanks. Um, He, so in the prologue, he has this sort of fictionalized version of his, you know, the start of his family unit. And it turns out my grandmother's father. So my great grandfather and Jimmy Streeter's grandmother are half siblings because my grandmother, my great grandfather came from his first set of kids from his first wife. Mm -hmm. And she like, I think she died in childhood maybe. And then he married someone else and had another set of kids. So they're half siblings. Um, but if it hadn't been for that book, I wouldn't even know that much. Like he was this, you know, the, my great grandfather's 
father was a slave who had was in favor with the slave owner so was given land or at least that's how the story goes in the book right mm-hmm. like i don't know how well, how much truth is there but here's the kicker so my my aunt was my aunt gladys my aunt gladys i want to say is the one handing out copies to the family at grandpa's 90th and a birthday and my grandma's like those aren't my people i don't know what you're talking about those aren't my people and i'm like granny it's clearly your dad's name right here in this book. <laughs> like what? <laughs> so there's that point of trauma too. Like what kind ah. of trauma was she, go- ex- had she experienced that she doesn't want to acknowledge being black, even yeah. though she went to a black Baptist church, you know, she was so ingrained in the black community here in Modesto. Like my grandfather was a deacon, like it, the community hurt when they moved to North Carolina, the community felt it like they were grieving with us, not really with us, but we all had grief around them leaving California, but you still have like this weird fraction where you don't want to talk about your childhood and what that was like, or any of that experience Mm -hmm. because your childhood's not black. It's so fascinating to me. And I feel like this book really like hits all of those chords. And the older I get, the more complicated this book gets for me. It's so true. And now you just jingled that, that thought of life to the, the friend that I worked with who was purposely passing as, as white in the early 2000s. And I remember asking her why one day I was just like, I don't, I don't understand. Cause I said, it's very clear to me. And she's like, most people can't tell. And she said, frankly, like some of the things I've been through, what my dad's been through. So interestingly, it's her dad who is black, but neither of her parents knew who their parents were. Oh, Like even her mom appeared to be white, she said, like her dad was more visibly black, but each of the, them didn't actually know. But because of the overt racism he experienced growing up and then she herself too, as a young girl before she could start modifying her appearance a bit more to appear more white. She was like, I just don't want to go through that again. And I don't mm. want my kids to experience it. And I was just like, but in my mind, I was like, but sometimes people are going to know and that's going to hurt even worse because mm-hmm. you think you're, you're kind of, and then you're pulling the wool over your own eyes too, mm-hmm. right? Every day, like forcibly straightening your hair and, and, and which is fine. Like it's a style thing. And I know there's a lot of white women who have curly hair who, yeah. who straighten it. And it's I'm not saying people can't, you know, alter their hair if they feel like it. But for her, it was definitely so solidly attacked. Like I made a joke one time saying like, I dare you to wear your hair curly one time. I would just love to see. And like the look, she was so mad at me for saying that in front of other people. And I was just like, having curly hair doesn't (laughs) just make you black. Like other people have things, but she was just so mortified because it was tied up in her you know, her claimed identity of, yeah. of who she, who she was and the pain of that, like, to me, that was like painful to witness right. and painful to, to see her go through that. And, and her kids, like she has three beautiful kids. And it's funny, even in her kids, you could just tell, and yeah. they would, they would come in and we had such fun, like talk, talking together. And I think they were even looking for some of that, like identity um, and recognition that they weren't able to have within their own family. But anyway, she's a lovely, lovely person. And, you know, everybody's doing the best they can with with what they have. But that was, that's the only example of, you know, modern day passing that I've experienced in my life. Yeah. It's actually a really good segue for this next point I would like to make. Uh Since the film's debut at the Sundance Film Festival, the internet has been a serious buzz with opinions about the casting, 
But the conversation didn't start there. In 2021, the Hollywood Reporter ran an article with the headline, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negas Racial Identity Movie, Passing and Why Rebecca Hall Was the Perfect Person to Direct. In which Yang Bongiovi, I'm saying it like an Italian, I don't know if she is Italian or this person's Italian, shares she expressed concern about a white British woman heading this film. It was in a conversation with Hall that Hall shared her mother is an African-American woman and that her family history includes generations of passing. Bon Jovi concluded Hall was the perfect person to tell this story. Later in the article, Hall shares that she doesn't have the Black American experience, but that she does have the experience of being raised by people who were raised by people who made choices that were shaped by living in a racist society. It comes to that generational trauma, right? Like that's mm-hmm. kind of speaking to that. So her mother's making decisions about her, their life based on the trauma she's experienced living in racist America. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not always given enough credit, but we also see that sort of sometimes come up in conversation. Like, have you seen Colin in black and white yet? No, it's a Netflix original, original Colin Kaepernick and Ava DuVernay. I just saw a preview for it. Yes. It's in my list. Okay. When you watch it, let's have conversations because Turlock is 15 miles away from where I live. So I know people who know him, like we're two degrees separated. Uh So that show really like, he's like three years younger than me, I want to say. So we're like sort of in the same nexus of experience in terms of like generation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, I I had to, I had to watch a palate cleanser before bed because I had so many emotions running through my body with his story. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll bet. I mean, just the name, Yeah, say that name and it conjures up, you know, so much. So I can only imagine his, yeah. He kind of really highlights, you know, how having white parents sort of didn't really fully prepare him for the black experience in America. And I think that's a conversation that happens but not as prominently as it should. Like there's a movie called Losing Isaiah starring mm-hmm. Halle Berry. Did you see that movie? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's another one that I'm just like, oh, I've seen it twice and I just can't, like, I want to watch it again, but I also like, it's just so emotional that I don't know if I have it in me to cry that hard. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a dude. It's been a while. I saw it when it first came out. Yeah. And it's funny now that you mentioned that. Um, so I was raised by my mother's parents who mm-hmm. are white and in Canada for the most part. So I born in Bermuda, raised in Canada, moved to the US um, eight years ago. And, and there is, it's, it's so different, even though we're, you know, we're neighboring countries and there's a lot of things we have in common in our economy and popular culture, all of that, but how that is handled and how race is discussed or not discussed um, is very, very different. And I for sure was not prepared. <laughs> go into the world because they didn't they didn't have the tools we didn't we didn't talk about race or or if we did it was just sort of like you just are who you are and you go out and be you and if people can't see them then boohoo to them like it was just not it was very glossed over the realities of what that would be like and when we moved here my daughters were in middle school and high school respectively and they were just I tried you know to prepare them I'm like it's going to be very different here and that's part of why we moved here because I want you to have the experience of being in classes with diverse kids and other Mm -hmm. kids who look like you because they were the one and onlys in Mm -hmm. Canada for the most part too and I was just like can't go out and and it was 
it was really hard for them because yeah. they got a similar thing. Like a lot of the, the black kids were just like, you look white and you talk white. And, you know, there was, they ended up becoming really good friends with other mixed kids, which mm-hmm. thankfully there were a lot of, and now, you know, they have friends from all over, but those first couple of years, rough, yeah, rough, rough, rough. Like the culture was just so, so different from what they were accustomed to. And, yeah. and now they're good, but both of their, I can't remember if you and I talked about this when you came on, on Maya, um, both of their university entrance essays, like, it was like, how did you overcome a challenge? And I feel mm. like every school asked, both of them talked about how like devastating it wow. was to the United States. And I was like, oh, and now wow. they're fine. Yeah. It's just I, that acclimation read, period. When I read it, we both cried. Like we all cried their first few weeks, like yeah. first days of school and like trying to, it's always hard, but like adding the race right thing to it because they were just like going through all the same things that I did all over again in Mm -hmm. another country Mm -hmm. and it's like when Irene's husband is very open about I mean it's not the exact same thing but it's in the it's in it's in it's on the same it's on the same highway yes (laughs) where Irene's husband is talking about the lynching that happened and the in Irene's like I don't want you to talk about that with the boys like don't please and he's like they need to know that this could be them and that's so gut-wrenching because he's not wrong, but as a mother, you want to protect your children forever. And yep. that, that releasing them into the world beyond, because in high, because when they're in high school, you still can, there's still a level of protection. They're coming home. Yeah. They can take their armor off and they can just be who they need to be to heal. And at least that's my hope for my child. And, and I feel like you would be the same type of parent. But then to send them out into the world where they can't just easily come home and heal if something happens, it's just, it's such a hard concept to grapple with. So that scene in the book this time around, and again, in and in the yeah. movie, I was like, just having big emotions about it because these sweet boys who clearly still are children and just want to play and have fun and, you know, be innocent. Like they have, they have to have their innocence stolen. They have to, in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And that's so heartbreaking and so unfair, but it's such the truth for so many black families and Brown families in America. Yeah. My youngest and her I think we'd been here about six or it was like spring of 2014, I want to say. So we'd been here almost a year. Um, and she had the previous year before cut her hair. She really wanted to have short hair. She was like, I cannot deal with all this hair. I don't want you doing it anymore. She wanted short hair. So that's fine. She would go to the barber with um, my husband and loved her short do. Moved here. She was walking home from school and with a group of kids. And they walked by, you know, where Marie's Donuts is over on, oh no because you're you you do know where that is but yeah. I do know where that is I've spent some time in that yes that's right <laughs> so they're just like over on Freeport and there was um a police car that was you know they were ironically they're getting donuts it's a stereotype but whatever they happened to be there yeah. and they were having their their coffee and their donut they passed by and all the kids one by one said hello and they they were being genuine like hello yeah. officer or whatever and then when she did it um the one guy dropped his donor like put his hand to the to his holster mm-hmm. and she was she knew in that instant she's like mom he thought I was a, a black boy yeah like people had confused her for a while saying you know when she had her hair short and yeah and that day she started to grow her hair long 
And I was like, you don't have to grow your hair long if you don't want to. I know you enjoy having short hair. And she said, no, in this country, I am in more danger um, if people think that I'm a black boy than if I'm a black girl. She's mm. like, I know it's not much better, but it's something. Mm. In seventh grade, yeah. in seventh grade, yeah. she came home and, and I was just like, it's so sad. And whether, you know, he, I've had people tell me since, well, he was probably just joking. It wasn't serious. It doesn't even matter it, if he it was doesn't... joking. Like exactly that changed the trajectory of someone's life and yeah. how they appear in the world, mm-hmm. even if it was just a joke. And mm-hmm. oh man. So that yeah. I mean that could have happened in Canada too. You know, they don't have a great track record there when it comes to arrests and the ratio of of you know who mm-hmm. is um who is stopped and frisked and all of that. But yeah, that innocence was gone, yeah. gone in an instant. We did, I did a show a couple years ago. I, 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 I've mentioned this before, you know, I did theater for off and on for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I have a complicated relationship with the theater because I'm ethnically ambiguous. And I think I've shared this with you before. So we did this show called freedom writers and it sort of highlighted, you know, a lot of the different events during the civil rights movement and our local theater house here does school shows. So schools can buy tickets and send whatever grade is appropriate for the show. Mm -hmm. So our show, first, I want to say I was cast as white characters every single time. And that was hard because the white people in the show were not good people. It wasn't like I was, you know, Jackie Kennedy, (laughs) which I can never be, but, um, it was, you know, I was the person who was yelling at Rosa Parks to get off the bus. So that was hard every day. Every time we rehearsed that scene, I'd come home and cry. Cause it was just like, I had, and the director would be like, I need you to be meaner. Sir, I am working there. I'm like, come on. I I need time. I'll get there. And I was on the night of the show, but it was really hard in rehearsal to get there. Right. Um, And then, so we did the school shows and they decided that fifth grade would be the youngest. That would be the cutoff. So we'd do fifth grade to high school kids would come to the show. Good size theater. You can pack a couple hundred people in there. So I'm doing ticket sales for, or baseball registration for my kid's school. Cause I was also coordinating the baseball program at the time. And one of the moms was like, oh, you look really familiar. And I was like, oh, I just have one of those faces. (laughs) And she's like, no, you were in the show. I was like, I need you to be more specific. So she had seen, she was part, one of the chaperones for the school tour. My son's school had attended. And I was very proud of them for doing that because I did not send him to traditional school. And so I, w- I was like, oh, what did you think? Because we poured our hearts and souls into the show. And I thought it did well. I had a teacher, um, come to opening night when we did the nighttime performances before we did the school tours. And she texted me and she's like, that was amazing. And I was like, thank you so much. And she, she kind of pauses, you know, you know, the pause, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and she goes, you know, I just feel like, and I thought, oh, here we go. That's classic girl. You don't know how many times I've heard. I just feel like, I just feel like, you know, the kids were probably a little too young. Okay. Well, by the time I was in fifth grade, I was 11 years old and people didn't think that my parents were my parents. So fuck you, um, is what I wanted to say, (laughs) (laughs) but I didn't. And I was like, you know, everyone's experiences are different and it's just, I think it's an important conversation to have. And maybe it opens the doors for you to have conversations. No, we're not good. I think we're just going to leave it be. Oh, 
Okay. P.S. This woman was also brown and I am, she married a white man and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Like there's nothing wrong with that, but there's a fraction, I think sometimes with groups that live in the margins that, and we don't have this kind of time for that conversation to proximity to whiteness (laughs) and breaking that down, but it felt very much like that. You know, when people make that accusation of like, um, black and brown people marrying up by marrying white, I Mm -hmm. sometimes do get offended by that statement because I'm a product, right. Of a relationship. But in that moment, it was like, oh, this is, I think I get that conversation based on this interaction with that woman. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard. Cause it's like, nobody cared. Nobody cared that we were kids and said stupid shit to us about our race and about our parents. Like we were immune just because, And so now you're trying, you're choosing to keep your child protected and that's a privilege, but it also, I think is a disservice at the same time, because like what we saw in Colin in black and white, some of his friends didn't get it. So they just brush off the experiences he had. And you really do need that person. And I think that's why Claire latched onto Irene so hard, because you need that person who understands what it's like to go through those experiences. Mm -hmm. And there's almost an instant bond. You don't have to like each other, but when you're, when you're one and two in a room, you do kind of gravitate towards each other. Cause you know, that, that there's at least one other person in the room who's going to get it. It is. It's like, it's like a life, a life preserver, a life jacket, like something in there and that shared bonded experience, even if it is traumatic, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that you're, you're not alone mm-hmm. in that moment. You're not alone. Yeah. A lot of reviews hit on how passing is a choice. And the tone I took was that it was a choice for a better life, which is normally the conversation around passing, right? Mm-hmm. Additionally, several publications chose to highlight how everyone in the film is passing in one way or another. While, yes, that's true, I think that racial passing has a deep-rooted complexity that is still obvious today. And And I was thinking about this, too, when I was watching the movie. I think that Irene's deflection in the movie about how, like, everyone has this sort of version of passing that they're doing I think that was on purpose so she could avoid having that conversation about actual passing Mm. instead of saying like, oh yeah, Claire's passing. She's, you know, diving deeper into that talk with, um, Hugh. Yes. I think she dropped that in there to deflect. So that way she didn't have to have that conversation. And I think I wish I found a review that maybe didn't bring that up about like how passing is a choice because then I think it negates the forced option that passing can be for some people. Like in my experience, passing's never been a choice. It was always, I was deemed this based on what somebody saw in me, regardless of what my experience was, regardless of who my parents were. And I had no control over somebody assuming that I was white until I opened my mouth and acknowledged that I have biracial lineage Mm. and I have a black granny and I have a black auntie and I do have black experiences. And it's like, Oh, I, I knew there was something in you kind of shit would happen. But in 1929, you know, that statement could have had serious consequences if I had opened my mouth and been like, actually I'm black. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the chances of that happening, actually just made me remember something when I was in grad school and was doing this work amongst other work. Yeah. um, Someone who uh, came up to me eventually and she was just like, so 
why do you think it's okay as a, as a white person to be talking about all these things? <laughs> like they were, and so I was like, then here we go again. Yeah. Like she really like couldn't see it. And I was like, well, actually I am part black. And I said, if I had to define myself by the way the US defines people and the one drop rule, I am. And she was just like, what? She's like, well, you look, and I was just like, I guess I, it depends how I wear my hair, I mm-hmm. guess, because it is super curly. But um, for, I was like, I guess I got to stop wearing it back in a bun or a ponytail <laughs> because like they're not, it just, yeah. And if there was a time in my life where my hair was relaxed too, right? And so it's a lot straighter and that would just apparently fool everybody. And so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. Like, but it's a really good point that you bring up about passing like yeah in the 1920s it, it, it could have been a choice but also like an impossible mm-hmm. choice but it also happens in some cases doesn't matter what a person says or does mm-hmm. that someone else is going to pass pass them for them mm-hmm. right or did I say did I say that right is going to make that choice based yeah. on how they how they see you or don't yeah. see you yeah it's like that opening scene when uh Irene it's hot and Irene needs respite so she goes to the Drayton and she you can you can see the concern on her face that someone's gonna find her mm-hmm. out but they just open the door and seat her and serve her and pick her up in a taxi and it's easy breezy but you can tell she's very concerned about getting found out like that's a real thing and I think sometimes when we talk about when people so I think family members recommending that other family members pass comes from trauma Two, I think that they don't necessarily like, there's a level of what I appreciate. Here I go. What I appreciate about the movie is that the actress Tessa Thompson fully shows you the fear she has behind passing when convenient, mm-hmm. because I think that's not talked about enough. So people say we, ha- and we mentioned it a little bit too earlier, right? Um, people passing so they can have a better life. That doesn't mean they didn't live in fear. Yeah. Or weren't still going through something traumatic just even by doing that. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, Claire, Claire was that girl. It's hard enough. I can't imagine coming home and still having to wear your armor and be on guard all the time. That sucks. Yeah. Like that thing about, I mean, especially at that time, them being pregnant and having babies at that time, Mm -hmm. that would have truly in her situation been a horrifying experience yeah right and right like now we say it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter as much but at that time I mean that could could have been life and death yeah it ends up I don't know if you want to get into the ending yeah. of the book yeah let's do it the book is 100 years old almost so if you guys don't know about this book it's not my fault and go and read it <laughs> stop here if you don't want any spoilers yes. and then come back because now I'm like I have a theory I, I still kind of feel like that it was not murder. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like because there's was... that scene right where they talk about it. Like, do you have an exit plan? And she's like, Yeah, I have. And she's so ambiguous about the exit plan that you're like, Yeah, I think actually I would probably be in a position where I'm like, I'd fling myself off a building too before getting if I got found out because it's better than being lynched. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. I just went on a oh, tangent. No. Megan, go ahead. Not at all. There's, I mean, there's the there's the lead up to, oh, I'll just come and live with you. Mm-hmm. So when I watched that last night, I was just like, oh, and Irene can't have that because mm-hmm. she will strangle her if she does come and live with her. Yeah. So Irene did have motive to be like, no, I just want you out of my life. 
once and for all. But the way her hand was, the way they depicted it, mm-hmm. it was like, no, she was reaching for her, like as if to, like, they don't really show it. They did such, right. a, they did such a good job. That open, and the book, the way the book ends is that open ending too, where you're just, there's so much speculation of like, who did it? Who was it? Yeah. And I think, I honestly think Claire gave up. Yeah. I think, you know, she realized she, and I mean, it's also what I want to believe because you don't like to, you know, think in murderous terms. But I think John might very well have killed her if yeah. he didn't push her through the the window. Yeah. So, and then also I think Irene wanted, just wanted her out of her life. I don't think she wanted her dead, but yeah. just like out of her life. But I kind of feel like the question remains, mm-hmm. but I, I sort of feel, I wish, I wish Nella Larson was still alive so, I know. <laughs> so we could talk to her about what, 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 she, what her thoughts are. behind it what do you think do you agree with that or do you think I I do agree with you because I have a hard time I have a hard time thinking about so I'm and I'm also coming from that personal experience of being forced into the white box when I'm not white um where the burden of passing like and we've had conversations offline I have to mask a lot just generally um and coming I've noticed that I'm way more exhausted on the days that are harder that where I have to hide a lot of myself, but I have the luxury of coming home and being me and having friends like you that I can, you know, take that mask off and be myself and fully get back to who I am. And then it starts all over, you know, and Claire doesn't have that. She can't do that, but she can with Irene. And so how freeing that must've felt for her. And I think that Ruth does such a great job showing that freedom in her face from the beginning. When you first meet her, first of all, (laughs) they were so good with acting like it was that time period with the way that, you know, how old movies have that sort of fluttery, like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like the tone to it, the way that the actresses sort of moved their bodies and spoke, like, I was like, okay, ladies, like, did you watch a bunch of stuff from like the twenties, like silent films and stuff to get like the body language. Oh yeah. Even how she would sit on the window. Like, mm -hmm. yes. Oh, so good. Um, but then as the movie progresses, you can see with Every time Claire's in Irene or uh, her husband's presence, mm-hmm. Irene's husband's presence, you can see she feel you, you can see she's more relaxed. She's more comfortable. She feels, you know, not as on guard. And how sad that she didn't get to have that in her own home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I feel but- like she, I, I feel like she took matters into her own hands. Saw, you know, that had a way out. And he, and Irene didn't get the chance to warn her that she ran into John on the street while with another black woman who is dark. And Mm -hmm. so how shocking for John to be like, what is going on? Who is my wife? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was brutal. You know, something else we haven't brought up yet, but I feel like it ties in here. Mm -hmm. Um, Zulina or Zoo, who's um, Irene's housekeeper. Oh, yes. And how that, like, there's several scenes where Claire is, like, spending time with Mm -hmm. Zulina. They're out in the backyard, and they're sitting in the sun, and they're looking at the trees and the birds, and, like, she's so at home and relaxed there. And then Irene gets so mad, right? Mm -hmm. Because she's just, like, like, you're here in my house, like, you're in my home, and, like, I need these groceries put away. And so it's partially her treatment of um, Zulina as, like, the hired Mm -hmm. help, but also, like, 
Zulina's much darker and it's like there's a there's a very big you know class discrepancy there and then she even says at one point and she's like it's normal to have help like it doesn't it doesn't mean anything like everybody has to have help but I'm like like in that time would it even been have been possible to have someone of another race who was your live I don't even I can't tell if Zulina was live-in help or she came to visit yeah I couldn't tell either but I found I was just like that's so awkward, right? Mm-hmm. But then that was a class thing too. Like, okay, here's this lighter skinned person who's mm-hmm. like attained some economic, you know, stability and she's a mother of two boys. And yeah, mm-hmm. it was totally normal for white families to have a servant at that time. So yeah. was it also for black families? And it's like, it's just so weird. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the whole layout of it, but the fact that she felt the need to say something, it's totally normal. Yeah. Everybody has help these days. Yeah. And I was like, nope, that was like a little bit of that. I feel like that was still that insecurity, like of trying to justify mm-hmm. something that she still felt was kind of wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Claire felt such a kinship with Zulina. Right. And Claire's adamant disposition with um her husband about not hiring a black maid because mm-hmm. again yeah. I feel like we can always we always sniff out our own <laughs> um <laughs> except for nobody could peg Rachel Dole is all so that one's a fail on us um, but you know it, the same thing happens in Vanishing Half where one of the have you read that yet I have not and I realized it's in the, um in my audible up, up next although I think I actually want to read the book cause yeah because it's it. it's a beautiful book Britt Bennett is brilliant but there's a scene where one of the characters I'm being vague on purpose because I don't want to ruin anything for you yeah um and I'm jealous you haven't read it yet because I would love to be able to read it for the first time again um <gasps> yeah <laughs> But she's very adamant about uh, people moving into the neighborhood because I think it comes from that fear of like, they'll know that she's black, but she's not living as a black woman. Um, I think I actually gave something away. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Actually, there's this moment. It's funny. Now that you say that, that's a good title, The Vanishing Half. When Mm -hmm. I was in college. And I went to a college town that was um, in Ottawa, Ontario, which is mm-hmm. the, it's the capital of Canada and also the um, capital of Ontario. No, Toronto, anyways, I'm doing geography. <laughs> Ottawa is the capital of Canada. It's cold. It's on the border with, with Quebec. Um, but same latitude as like Winnipeg and I think mm-hmm. Moscow. So the winters are kind of brutal. Anyway, going to a club one night with some friends. And there was this moment we were walking through um, the entrance it's funny we went in through the upstairs and then went down it was almost like how they make houses in Britain but okay anyways, it was in Canada so we go in through the entrance and we walked by and everybody in the bar happened to be white in that moment and the only reason why I noticed it is as we were walking by and there was like four or five of us women these guys turned around and go wow if it isn't the united fucking colors of Benetton would you look at that and I I kind of like started up and was like you know, there was a time in the nineties, right. Where that was the whole yeah. thing, the you know, I colors of Benetton and it was some of the first very pro racially diverse, um, fashion advertising we'd seen in quite some time. And I realized that everybody I had walked in with was a woman of color in some way, shape or form. And most of us were like, um, mixed with black and white. And I was just like, Oh, like in that moment, like we broke up what was 
the norm. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't heard that comment, and I mean, he obviously intended us to hear it too, but I was kind of like, I just turned and kind of smirked over my shoulder. Yeah. Whatever, you know, but that's, it's an interruption. Yeah. This is interruption for people. And like, like you said, if you see like one person and like with John on the street, right. You just saw Irene and it's like, okay, there, but seeing her in the context of linked arms with another black woman, it Mm -hmm. was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? If there's Mm -hmm. more than one, (laughs) Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Like, it seems to change something in the perception of what, what that gathering is, what that identity is and what that means in your interaction, right? Now there's something that's, um, I feel like before that moment, like walking into that bar, like, yeah, we were totally invisible on our own, but walking in as a group of friends, suddenly it was just like, what the heck is going on here? Now there's like, a whole a volleyball team <laughs> or whatever, right? It changes something in the numbers, right? Yeah. In the neighborhood and yeah. 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 There's so much about, this is why passing needs to be required reading because there's so much about it and it's so layered and it's so, it's a safe way to, I think, have these conversations too, because you're talking about fiction. So you can be vulnerable and sort of ask sort of scary questions. Um, because it's also, you know, it's a dated, it's dated in the sense that it's 1929, but it's not dated because the, these themes are still very relevant today. Back to the conversation about all the hubbub about um, the casting, like, right. whoo, that shit hits me hard. Again, to use the word triggered, because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I got cast as a white chick, multiple white roles for freedom writers. And that was hard. And, um, there's like the, I love acting Megan. I love acting. I love performing. I love all that stuff. Like, I feel like I have the personality to be on stage. And so, (laughs) (laughs) but it's hard because when it, like I can do the last show I was in literally race didn't matter because we were playing characters that were just stupid and goofy. It was a kid's show. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a touring kid's show. And so it did like, none of that mattered because that wasn't the point, but it's hard to get work. I mean, well, I live in the Valley, so that's hard to get acting work period. But like when I, when they did, um, I mean, anything I would have loved to play Claire. Mm -hmm. I think that would have been such a great role and so when people started talking shit about them hiring Tessa Thompson and Ruth to play these roles it was just like it just it hit in a way because it's like it's so hard to get work period as a black actor but then when you full on bring the varying shades of right like I say things like I could never be uh, Michelle Obama in a biopic because I'm too late. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like I could play Rashida Jones in a biopic. I was just going to say, I'm like, I feel like the only person, you know, phenotypically that might've been like more perfect is, um, yeah, Rashida Jones. Or or... Mariah Carey. I looked like Mariah Carey when I was a little girl. Um, Yeah, Maya Rudolph. Yeah, but it was just hard. It's just hard. Like watching the internet have that conversation really impacted me because it was just like another reminder that again, I don't fit. I don't even fit enough to even try and like play Claire or Irene. Like I'm still not allowed to people toned like me are still not allowed to play those characters. Yeah. Or like, do you remember? Oh my God. Was it Zoe Saldana? I love her. Mm, Center stage (laughs) y'all. 
But she played, um, I still haven't seen it because there was so much hoopla. Nina Simone. Oh. Didn't she play Nina Simone? And it's mm. because it was the opposite, right? Yeah. They they darkened her and they were just like, that is blackface. Like you can't, it's, it's there's always like, I feel like there's always going to be that because people are, it's so important. That goes back to like that work that I did about this where it's like, there's these varying shades. Like none of us is actually the same color. Yeah. None of us. There's a few artists who've been doing these like Pantone color projects where they're like documenting the shades of people around the world. And it's mm-hmm. just like, nobody is the same color, but they get reduced to these flat, like 3D. Well, this is what it is mm-hmm. like to be black. This is what it's like to be brown. This is what it's like to be white. And it's, it's just not that, but we find it easier somehow categorically, mm-hmm. especially in the United States to like put everybody in those boxes oh was it 12 years of slave didn't mariah carey play a small role in 12 years did she so i I read the book so when the movie came out i was like i don't think i can emotionally handle this oh (laughs) it's so it's really traumatic but it is good she did play yeah yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. And it's hard. And I love, but here's, this could be a whole other topic that we could go <laughs> down, but I'm going to, I'm going to add this. The black community has embraced Mariah Carey, but mm-hmm. Tina Turner had not Tina Turner, Whitney Houston had a really hard time mm-hmm. being embraced by the black community in the beginning. So I, I would love it. I would love it if somebody would like let me go to school and pay for it so I could study these things on an academic because <laughs> I'm fascinated by it. Right. Because my personal experience, like I mentioned, I'm never cast in roles that don't emotionally damage me at the yeah. end of the day. <laughs> I know having to yell at a hypothetical Rosa Parks would be hard. It was really hard. hard. It was, I'd come home and cry. I would come home and cry. So when Lakeith Stanfield was in uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, mm-hmm. he talked about how hard it was to play that character because he plays the guy who sort of rats out. Um, why is everyone's name escaping me? Right I can now? see the scene in front of me, but I can't tell you. Yeah. So either. the character that the man that he plays, the, that man in real life mm-hmm. did an interview in the 90s and they show that clip at the end of the film and he within an hour of that interview airing he takes his own life because he feels so guilty and Lakeith Stanfield has done interviews where he said it was psychologically hard to play that role and and granted I'm not I do not have any success as an actor because there's a part of me that just kept giving up because I just kept getting tired of like the bullshit people put me through about mm-hmm. like well, do you even fit for this show? Yeah, bitch, I could totally play Joe March. I got that shit dialed. Who cares that I'm brown? Okay, <laughs> but whatever. But when he said that, I was like, oh my God, thank you. Because I think people forget what it's like to become another person and then have to portray that and then have to be that. And just, it's, um, it is so hard, like uh, off topic, but adjacent, Jack Nicholson, playing the Joker said that that was a really hard role to play and it really messed with his mind. So when Heath Ledger took on the role, he, there's a story, I don't know if it's true, but the story goes, he kind of gave him a phone call and warned him like, be careful, don't let it take you over. And we, you know, whether or not that role actually took him over, he was, he was no longer with us shortly after that film released. Right. Oh, I have Pringles all over. I didn't know that previously about Mm -hmm. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And so, so I think Mm -hmm. sometimes too, like, 
yes, we need to have these conversations about like all of these things, but when the, with the advent of the internet and social media, that sort of narrowing in and having an opinion about it amplifies the difficulty for the actor to like decompress at the end of the day from their job, I think. Because it keeps going and it becomes a narrative outside the story. It becomes Mm -hmm. a a personal narrative on you, Mm -hmm. right? You're, you're, you're too light. You're too dark. You're too, right. And other people saying this Mm -hmm. and you're just like, hold on. I'm the actor in this place, in this space, playing this role. And then to have literally millions of people weighing in on whether you're qualified to do that or not based on something you have no control over. Right. And at first I was, I had a conversation with my friend where I was like, listen, I'm not here for that shit, but also as a person who wanted an acting career, do I feel like I could have tried out for that role? Had I actually gone down the path that I desired to go down at 17? Yeah. But also like, it's, it's still, it's still, you know, that's still hard because even if they had hired somebody who was toned like myself or Mariah or Rashida, there still would have been controversy. People still would have been pissed about it. Um, and it's just, it's just, I don't know. We got to stop doing that to each other. And I think it kind of highlights, I was thinking about it more and more as I've been listening to the audio, watching, um, the movie last night, it also kind of highlights like no matter who they had chosen, Mm -hmm that this would have happened anyway, because we still want to fit people into a box of what we think or Mm -hmm. what we understand. And when we don't understand something or we're like fooled, right? Like how Claire like fooled Mm -hmm. John Bilou, people don't like to be fooled. And they're like, but we know Ruth Nega is black because she was in the loving movie. We know Tessa, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's almost like they just could have gotten somebody who nobody knew who they were at all, like a total right? <laughs> to play it. And then it could be like, you know, or imitation of life. Have oh my gosh. My movie? mom and I were just talking <laughs> about that movie because Freddie Washington was like, fuck Hollywood. I'm out. <laughs> Cause they were so awful to her. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's, I have to rewatch that. It's been year. Oh my God. At least 20 years since yeah. I've seen that. And that movie was like, it's like 1949 yeah yeah but still you know poor freddie washington like what amazing work could we have received from her if hollywood had been better and i wonder too how many other actors and out there were like me who were just like it's not fucking worth the emotional trauma to try anymore (laughs) Mm -hmm. or people that we don't know like i feel like people talk about it now Mm -hmm. but it hasn't when it doesn't fit with what the media or the public narrative is about a topic, then they just get uncomfortable and they just don't do it. Yeah. And so there's, it's like, there's a certain number of people, like it's okay for Rashida and Mariah, like they're the stars, but like how many other people like that Mm -hmm. are out there that are doing this great work that we don't hear about, but there isn't a narrative about them because it doesn't fit black or white. And I think that's why they eliminated Gertrude as kind of a more central character yes. because the U.S. perception has to be one or the obviously other. black or white. They're, it's the, the shades in between just even the more it's beautiful, but the cover art mm-hmm. for the movie, I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, dang, like it's really good. But again, it's the shades of black and white. Like mm-hmm. they're not looking at even though the film itself does explore right. tonality throughout, um, but they have to market it in a certain way because that's what people understand. Right. What they What they look for. 
Absolutely. So complicated. It is. And I do kind of miss, I did miss Gertrude from the story. Mm-hmm. I feel like she sort of helped. What's the, how do I want to say this? She was that third piece. I think that really helped bring home, especially in that scene, talking about their kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause it gives it more dimension. I think when you have more than, you know, not just two, but three or four people sort of addressing yeah. those. I'm going to watch it again. Cause they eliminated that scene, which is like the three photos I did that thesis yeah. on was one for each of them, but there's a few other scenes where she's in them. And I thought that that was Gertrude, but I'm going to rewatch it. I was going to rewatch it anyway, but I'm <laughs> going to rewatch it to see if that actually is who they assigned yeah. her to be in the movie or if she's like no named, but I, I yeah. think that's her. She's taller. Mm-hmm. A little bit she's darker. beautiful. I was like, who is this actress and why don't we have her in more stuff? Thank you. <laughs> she might've been the woman who was in, um, it's hard with the black and white. I know. So different. Yeah. She might've been the actress who played in, um, oh my God, the sci-fi one with uh, Journey Smollett. Um, Lovecraft Country? Thank you. I think that she might've been the actress who played her sister. Journey oh! Smollett's sister. In that. And it's hard because they're both period pieces, right? So mm-hmm. like when you put people in, in different um, costumes and hairstyles and what have you, it, it different get, eras, it, different eras, it can make it really she hard. She reminded to... me of her. I'll look it up. I'll yeah. Interesting. Who it is, but... mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. We could literally talk about <laughs> Is anybody still with us? Are you still <laughs> with us? Because... <laughs> Listen, if you are, you're a rock star and we love you. <laughs> Thank you for sitting through all of this time with us because it's an important conversation and I'm really grateful to you, Megan, for coming on today. I mean, like seriously, I, in my entire, and I don't know if this is your experience, but in my entire life, it's so hard to talk about stuff like this. That's nuanced with, I mean, monoracial isn't really a thing, but I'm going to use the term just because that's what people understand, um, you know, who are monoracial because the nuances they miss out on. And so having to like, not have to be like, well, there's this nuance we should discuss that I need to break down for you and just have that conversation freely. It's just so nice. I know my dream. Let's manifest that we can have a conversation next with um, Ruth Nega or <laughs> Tessa Thompson. Oh and I love Tessa Thompson. Amazing. She's Absolutely so amazing. good. Even the director, I've read a few interviews with her too. And she just sounds like she'd be a really, really interesting person to talk I with. Almost sent you a link. So there's this podcast I listened to called multiracial white boy. It's really interesting. Kim Noonan is the host and he interviews people that are, you know, biracial or have multiracial backgrounds and whatever he shared on his stories, the treatment. Are you familiar with that podcast? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Hall was on an episode of the treatment. And so I was like, Ooh, I'd be curious to hear from her directly rather than reading an article. Right. Um, and I almost sent it to you, but it wouldn't let me cause I was at the airport. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I will send it to you though, because it was really interesting hearing. First of all, I love the host of the, of the treatment. He's got mm-hmm. a great voice and like, can he replace what's his face who passed away? John Lip- Lipton from the inside the actor's studio. Cause I feel like he has a voice to do that. Okay. Okay. Anyway, but I, that's a, it was a really good interview with her and to hear her speak specifically and not just read her words in an article. I don't know. It just made me more excited about the movie. Absolutely. I want to listen to that. Yeah, for sure. I will send it to you. 
Okay, friends, if you're still with us, you are a rock star and we love you. And thank you for being here with us. And Megan, can you please remind everybody where they can find you if they want to keep up with you online? <laughs> oh, of course. Um, so my on Instagram, I'm at loving this life, L-U-V-I-N, and then this life. And my name is Megan Morgan. I also have a podcast called My Yoga Audio. And actually, Julia was a guest. We talked about her podcast and the mixed girl experience on her episode there too. So there's always a link in my bio. There is an Instagram channel for that too, my.yoga.audio. And then the website is myyogaaudio.com. Just those three words spelled out um, and in there. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, anything I can help with. Um, we can talk more about this if you're looking yeah. for guests to come on your show or to talk about um, literary and art things. I would absolutely love to um, hear from any of you. And Megan has written a book and we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. So that way you can, if you want to read more about her um, and learn more about her so you can support her in her art. <laughs> I just really encourage you all to listen to her podcast and to, you know, follow her on the gram because it's, it's just a joy. And the fact that she's a photographer, you guys, like some of her pictures are amazing. So it's definitely <laughs> worth it. <laughs> Thank you. And again, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today about this topic. We'll have to have you back. Say anything. In your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole host of topics besides say anything, but I know that you love that movie. So mm -hmm. if you guys, when you sit down and either read the book or watch the movie of passing, please reach out to us. We would love to have more conversation with you all about this film and the themes and just the way it makes you feel and questions like we are safe humans to discuss these things with. Mm -hmm. And when you're done doing that, find us online and you can find the show on Instagram at pop culture makes me jealous. And again, I, you guys stuck it out. This is a long one. It was worth it, I think. And I really appreciate you for staying to the very end of listening to this. <laughs> but until next time, friends, thanks for tuning in y'all. Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous is written, edited, and produced by me, Julia Washington. If you love our show and want to support it, there's a few ways you can do that. You can become a supporter on Patreon for $10 a month to receive ad-free episodes with bonus content. New episodes will begin dropping on Patreon on March 9th, 2022. Or you can write a review and rate the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And lastly, if neither of those things is your style, you can find us on Instagram, give us a follow and share our video clips with your friends. We're on IG as pop culture makes me jealous. Thanks for tuning in y'all. <laughs>